Well, good morning. My name is Brian, and this morning, at the beginning of this new year, we're going to go back to the beginning of the Bible and take a look at our series on origins from Genesis 1 through 3. In this series, we've already looked at Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, the origin of everything. And then we looked at Genesis 1, 3 through 25, and saw the origin of life. And what we've learned is that God has created everything out of nothing in the space of six days by the word of his power. And when God began to create, the raw state of his creating was that the earth was formless and void, and darkness covered the waters of the deep. And God filled the emptiness, and he formed the formlessness. He brought light into the darkness, and he brought dry land out of the waters. God created everything. He brought order out of chaos, and everything had purpose. He had created an inhabitable space. And that brings us to our text today, Genesis 1, 26 through 31. We're on day six today in the creation days after God has created the animals. And today we're going to look at the origin of humanity the origin of of humanity. As you find your place in your Bibles or on your device, I'd encourage you to keep it open this morning as we'll be going back to it again and again. I want to begin with this idea. We have a longing to be connected to or identified with royalty. We have a longing to be connected to and identified with royalty. The movie Tangled came out in 2010, and I was a single dad in this phase of life. I had a nine-year-old daughter and a five-year-old daughter, and as a single dad raising two daughters, Tangled came out, and we went to see it. And then we bought the DVD, and then we watched the DVD over and over and over again. And the movie Tangled is an imaginative retelling of the story of Rapunzel in which Mother Gothel kidnaps the princess, right, Rapunzel, from the palace, and she, she kidnaps her because she has this magical hair, this life-giving hair. And Mother Gothel takes Princess Rapunzel and locks her in a tower to keep her safe. And every year on her birthday, the king and the queen back at the palace send up floating lanterns. And Rapunzel watches from her window every year, locked in the tower. And something deep inside is speaking to her. It's speaking to her of an outside world. It's speaking to her of a life that might have been. It's speaking to her because she's royalty and she doesn't even know it. You see, some of our favorite stories are stories where the main character finds out that they're royalty. Why? Because we want to be royal. What if that were us? We're going to look at our passage this morning under three headings. First of all, we're going to consider image. Then we're going to consider dominion. And then we're going to consider redemption. Image, dominion, 
and redemption. And here's what I'm going to tell you this morning. We were created as kings, and the king will redeem us by making us like him. Let me say that again. We were created as kings, and the king will redeem us by making us like him. Let's focus our attention on God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word beginning in Genesis 1 with verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit you shall have them as food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth everything that has the breath of life i have given every green plant for food and it was so and god saw everything that he had made And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come into your presence to consider the awesome and beautiful mystery that we are created in your image, I pray that you would convince us of our sin and misery, that you would enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and that you would renew our wills by the power of your gospel, through the work of your Holy Spirit, and the mediation of your Son. I ask that you would forgive the one who teaches his sins, for they are many. May we see Jesus and him only. Amen. First of all, this morning, let's consider together image, image. So here we are on day six, and after God creates the animals, there's a sudden change in the pattern. You see, for seven times to this point in the text, we've had this phrase, this statement, where God says, let there be. And each of these statements announce God's intention, his design, his will for creation. But we get to verse 26, and that phrase changes. Then God said, let us make. So we've moved from let there be seven times to let us make. It's still announcing God's intention, God's design, God's will, but now it's personal. God inserts himself, let us make. And do you realize how much that changes things? You see, if we accept the secular worldview of Darwinian evolution, right? if you evolved out of the primordial ooze and through the survival of the fittest became the best possible version of yourself, where do we get meaning? Where do we get value? Where do we get purpose? 
But if your origin is that God personally spoke of His intention, His design, His will for humanity, then from the very beginning, you were wanted. You were valued. You have design. You have purpose. And that changes everything. But what do we do with the plural here? Did you notice the plural? Then God said, let us make man. And remember, Moses, the author here, is arguing throughout Genesis and the Torah for monotheism, that there is only one God. So what do we do with a plural? Why let us? Well, some have suggested grammatical solutions, right? The the plural of self-deliberation or the plural of majesty. Some have said, well, Elohim, the word for God is plural, and so this is just agreement. But every time the word Elohim is used of the God, the one true living God, it takes the singular form of the verb. Perhaps the best suggestion to the use of the plural here is that this is referring to God and His heavenly court. And this would have fit with Moses' understanding of the world. Growing up in the Egyptian royal court, when Moses spoke, he wasn't just speaking for himself. He was speaking for the entire royal court. He was speaking for the entire nation. And we see this idea of the heavenly court in various places throughout the Bible of God's heavenly court. Well, New Testament authors with fuller revelation understood creation as a Trinitarian act. You see, God the Father speaks and acts, and the Spirit is hovering over the surface of the waters. And the Apostle John says that God the Son is the Word in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him. But this plurality of the Godhead is reflected in the origin of humanity in verse 27. And verse 27 is the first poem in the Bible. If you're reading this morning on a device, you won't see the same thing that you would see in a printed version because the printed version is going to give you three different lines in parallel to show you that this is a poem. And those three lines, so God created man in his own image, line one. In the image of God, he created him, Line two, male and female, he created them. Line three. You see, God is triune. One God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The same in substance, equal in power and glory. And that is his divine nature. And as he creates humanity in his image, we reflect His triune nature. There's not only unity in humanity, you could say we're all of the same substance, equal in power and glory, but there's also plurality and diversity to humanity. God made us male and female. Maleness and femaleness aren't social constructs. They're creational categories, and they're built in right here at the beginning. 
Now, of course, these creational categories manifest in culture and are shaped by their particular time and society, but that doesn't mean that we get to choose or create our categories. It's hardwired into our DNA. But here's the thing. Do you know why God made us that way? God made us that way to show diversity in the being of God, to reflect His triune nature, one God and three persons. And here's the beauty and mystery of the triune nature of our God. In other monotheistic religions, Islam, Judaism, God needs to create in order to love right? In order to have love in the world, you need to have a lover and a lovee. You need to have a giver of love and a receiver of love. And if there's only one being in the entire universe, he can't both at the same time be the giver and the receiver of love. So in Judaism and Islam, God needs to create in order to love. But in Christianity, where we have one God and three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God doesn't need to create in order to love. God creates out of love. You see, forever and ever, the Father has loved the Son, and the Son has loved the Spirit, and the Spirit has loved the Father. And out of that beautiful, harmonious covenant love, God creates His covenant children, humanity. And here's the mind-blowing thing. In the same way, as we reflect the image of God, when a man loves a woman, when a woman loves a man with a covenantal love, with an intimate love, with a deep love, with a knowing love, God enables us too to create out of love. And God gives us the gift of covenant children. That's the mystery and beauty of the nature of the triune God reflected in humanity. We too create out of love. Now, in Genesis 1, 21, 24, and 25, God created creatures of sea, sky, and land, and he created them according to their kinds. But in Genesis 1, 26, God says, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. So instead of according to their kinds, man is created after a different kind. You see, man is created in the image and nature of the divine God of the universe. And image and likeness here aren't distinct categories. They're synonyms overlapping in meaning. You see, being created in the image of God is both about who we are and about what we do. Let me say that again. Being created in the image of God is both about who we are and about what we do. It's both our identity and our function. And we've already seen one aspect of our identity, the unity in diversity. But another aspect of our identity about who we are created in the image of God is our distinctiveness, 
our distinctiveness. In Genesis 1.22, let your eyes go up a couple of verses here. When God created the sea and sky creatures, God blesses them. And look at verse 22. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters. But in verse 28, there's an additional phrase that gets included. When God blesses man, look at verse 28. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You see, God speaks directly to man. Part of being made in the image of God, what sets us apart from the rest of creation is that God speaks to us. Being created in the image of God, you were created to have communion with God. We're spiritual beings. Now when theologians discuss what it means to be made in the image of God, they will also say that this means that we're rational beings. We, we have the ability to think. Or we're moral beings. We have a conscience. We know what's right and wrong. They'll talk about our capacity to create. Our capacity to love. The Westminster Shorter Catechism that we read this morning, question 10 says, how did God create man? And the answer is that God created man, male and female, after his own image, in knowledge, in righteousness, and holiness, with dominion over the creatures. Right? They're saying part of what it means to be created in the images of God is knowledge and righteousness and holiness. John Walton says that being made in the image of God confers on us dignity, entrusts us with responsibility, and implants in us a certain potential, namely the capacity to mirror our Creator. But here's what it means to be created in the image of God. We have a soul. You are an immortal creature. You have a beginning, but you do not have an end. And that's kind of hard to wrap your brain around as we think about what that means. C.S. Lewis helps put this in perspective. He says this, and part of this is your reflection quote this morning. C.S. Lewis says, is it, a, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare." All day long, he says, we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals that we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors 
or everlasting splendors. You are immortal. Civilization goes by like that. You will live into eternity. And here's the thing. This applies to every human being. It applies to every human being, and it should shape the way we treat people, even those who are different than us, especially those who are different than us. You see, the image of God is the foundation of our love for our neighbor. You can't fight for justice and racial reconciliation apart from the image of God. You see, in the secular worldview, with evolution and the survival of the fittest, it's always going to lead to oppression. It's always going to lead to one up and one down. They can't get to racial reconciliation. Diane Langberg says that oppression always begins with dehumanization, separating them from the image of God. The only way to get to true racial reconciliation is holding the belief that every human being is created in the image of God and therefore has innate dignity, meaning, value, and worth. At a previous church at which I served, I was brainstorming about how to transition a homogenous church to a multi-ethnic church. This church was located in a multi-ethnic city, and I had seen the gospel-shaped benefit of what, what a multi-ethnic church had to offer. And so as I was brainstorming, I had gotten to know Mike Campbell, the founding pastor of the church, and Steve Lanier uh, through the African American Leadership Initiative at RTS. And so I asked them, hey, would you guys come and be a part of our brainstorming session together? And they came, and at that brainstorming session, at one point, one of the members in the meeting said, why would we want them coming to our church? And I was offended, and I was hurt, and I was angry, and I was frustrated. And I went a couple of weeks later to meet with Mike over breakfast to debrief on this meeting, and I was expressing my frustration and my anger at this person and their comment and Mike Campbell looked at me across the table and he said, Brian, he is your other. You see, racial reconciliation can only happen if we hold that every human being is created in the image of God, even those who are different than you, especially those who are different than you image of God. Our second point this morning is dominion. Dominion. The image of God is about both our identity and our function, who we are and what we do. And we've looked already at who we are, our identity in the image of God, but now I want to focus on what we do, how we function as the image of God. One commentator says that the Hebrew phrase, in our image, is perhaps better translated as our image. So not in our image, but as our image. That is, man is created to function as the image. 
Now, in the ancient Near East, in the world that Moses grew up, this would make sense because images of the king, right, little statues of the king were dispersed throughout the countryside. And they were dispersed in order to remind the people to represent the presence, power, and authority of the king. And we still do this today. Who's on the $1 bill? Pop quiz here. Who's on the $1 bill? Yeah, George Washington. Who's on the $5 bill? Abraham Lincoln, right? We're carrying little images of our kings around in our wallets to remind us of the power and presence and authority of our kings, right? And that's why God created people in his image to represent his presence and power and authority in creation. You see, we function as a sign to point creation back to him. The movie Free Guy came out in 2021. And remember, when we're talking about movies, this is a reference, as Elle said last week, not necessarily a recommendation. And in the movie Free Guy, Ryan Reynolds plays a bank teller who is a non-player character in a video game, right? And this is an open world. It's kind of a brutal video game called Free City. And Guy, as a bank teller in this brutal video game, has always wears a blue shirt, okay? And he has a catchphrase that is, don't have a good day, have a great day. And he's programmed internally, his coding is such that he's designed to love a particular woman. And this woman that he's searching for in the movie likes her coffee, it's a medium coffee with a cream and two sugars. She loves this woman that he dreams of. She loves bubblegum ice cream and swings. And she's always humming this particular tune. And one day, Guy, in this video game, meets this player who happens to do all the things that he's programmed to love. And so he falls in love with her. And I'm not going to give away everything in this story. It's kind of their, their adventure together, because it's 2021, right? It's now only 2023. I should give you a little more time. To, but at one point in the movie... Ryan Reynolds' guy turns to this woman he's fallen in love with, realizing who he is, realizing his programming, and he says, I'm just a love letter to you. Somewhere out there is the author. And don't you see that's exactly how God has created humanity. Humanity is just a love letter to creation. We're a sign that's designed to point us back to the author, back to the creator. But the essence of our function as the image of God is found in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. And then down in verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over all creation. And subdue and have dominion are the essence 
of how, God, of how humanity functions as the image of God. And subdue and have dominion are royal words. They're used of king's duties in the ancient Near East, the kings of Egypt and Babylon and Mesopotamia. The picture of man here is as a kingly creature, as God's vice regent, ruling over creation with and for God as God's representative. Now Moses grew up in Egypt, and he would have grown up in Pharaoh's court. And in Egypt, there was only one person who is deemed to be in the image of God. And that one person was Pharaoh himself. But the biblical understanding is different. In the Bible, it's not just kings, it's not just pharaohs that are made in the image of God. Everyone is made in the image of God. Everyone is created as a king. And notice, notice, it's not just men who are given this status. In verse 27, it's male and female he created them. And in verse 28, God said to them, male and female, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Do you know how radical, how countercultural that is? 3,000 years ago, Moses was writing that women were created as kings. In God's economy, as part of God's design, men and women are to subdue and rule as kings in the image of God. Some of you are frustrated this morning that I didn't use inclusive language with our theme, right? When I said we are created as kings, you wanted me to say we were created as kings and queens, right? But I did it on purpose because the Bible is saying that there's no distinction here between men and women, that they are co-equal and co-reign. Obviously, there's a distinction. That's part of the whole point. But, but there's no distinction here in their equality. They're co-equal and co-reign that women, being created in the image of God, also function as kings. Nothing less. Our world is fascinated by royalty. Uh, when the Meghan and Harry docuseries came out on Netflix, it very quickly became one of the 10 top most watched shows on Netflix. But I want to go back about 40 years. In 1981, Princess, Di well, Lady Diana Spencer at that point married Prince Charles. The, the heir to the throne of the United Kingdom. And this was the first time since 1660 that a British citizen was going to marry the heir to the throne. And there were uh, $135 million spent on this wedding. 750 million people from 74 countries watched the event live. 16 years later in 1997, after a tumultuous marriage and ensuing divorce, and then finally a tragic death, 2.5 billion people tuned in to watch Princess Diana's funeral. Why? Why is that, right? Princess Diana was a story, the real life story of an ordinary woman 
who became a princess. And we're all wondering, what if that happened to us? What would it be like to live that fairy tale, right? What if we were royal? And that longing comes from a deeper reality that sometimes gets lost. You see, you are royal. You are royal. In the Bible, at the very beginning, at the origin of humanity, we were created as kings. We were created as kings. And being created as kings in the image of God, we have a kingly purpose. We have dominion over creation. We're supposed to subdue and rule. Verse 28, this blessing to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion, it's called the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate. And one commentator says that this blessing, the cultural mandate, enables humanity to achieve its twofold destiny, to procreate in spite of death and to rule in spite of enemies. And as we take up our kingly function as the image of God to have dominion, we must remember that our function is a function of stewardship, not of ownership. This is God's world. You see, all too often the cultural mandate has been twisted to say the world is ours. We can do with it whatever we want. And it ends up resulting in uh, exploitation of this world for our own personal gain. And we need to treat this function, the cultural mandate, with care and concern because this is God's world. This is God's world. And with that in mind, we should be, Christians should be leaders in ecology, in preserving and nurturing the planet. We should be harnessing and sustaining our natural resources, protecting against waste, picking up trash, recycling. And we shouldn't just be doing it for the sake of our kids, although that's a fringe benefit. We should be doing it because this is God's world. This is God's world. We are stewards, not owners. This isn't some disposable, throwaway planet. This is the origin of humanity. God gives kingly dignity and responsibility to every man and woman. We are kings in identity and function. We are kings in who we are and in what we do, but it gets better. God also provides for mankind. Look at verse 29. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And in verse 30, this extends to the birds and the animals. You see, what God creates, He also sustains. And this is shockingly different than other creation accounts of the day. In the Babylonian account, man was created to provide for the needs of the gods. There was an epic battle, the Babylonian account says, at the beginning of creation. And man was created to alleviate the losing gods of their duties, their responsibilities to the victor gods. Man was basically a slave in the Babylonian account. But here, 
in the Bible, God provides for his creature. Man is royal, not a slave, but man is royal and dependent. He's a king sustained by God. Genesis stresses God's goodness and not God's needs. In Babylon, the needs of the deity are met by man, but in the Bible, we have a God who provides for us. We have a God who meets our needs. Verse 31, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was morning, and there was evening, the sixth day. We were created as kings. But the story doesn't end there. And that brings me to our third point this morning, redemption. Do you remember at the fall, what was Satan's temptation? What was Satan offering? If you look down a couple of chapters, Genesis 3, verses 4 and 5, but the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. That's the essence, that's the thrust of Satan's temptation. You will be like God. But wait a minute, we were created in the image of God. We're already like God. And isn't this just like Satan? To ask us to sell our soul for something that is already ours? And after the fall, the image of God is distorted and twisted, but it remains. And we know this from Genesis chapter 9 in the Noahic covenant, where after the flood, God reissues the cultural mandate in verses 1 through 3. And then verse 6 of Genesis 9 restates that God made man in his own image. You see, the fall hinges on the image of God, on us desiring to be like God, something that we already had. But just as the fall hinges on the image and likeness of God, so does our redemption. You see, in 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul calls Jesus the image of God. And in Hebrews 1.3, the author of Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. You see, as kings created in the image of God, we need to be redeemed by the King who is the true image of God, the ultimate image of God, the final image of God. You see, all that we were called to be and do in this world as the image of God, our identity and our function as the image of God, Jesus has been and Jesus has done for us. He was the image that you and I were meant to be. And so redemption, our sanctification, is about being conformed more and more to His image. In Romans 8.28, 
Paul writes, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, he goes on, for those he foreknew, he also predestined. And what did he predestine them to be? He predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son. This is the essence of of the Christian life, to be conformed to the image of His Son. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, what is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die to sin and live to righteousness. You see, the Christian life is about being renewed after the image of God. And for some of you this morning, that may bring great joy. Because as you look back on your life, you see that you are more like Jesus today than you were three years ago. But for some of you, this may bring despair. Because as you look at your life today, you feel like you're less like Jesus than you were yesterday. But if you're on that journey this morning, if you are being conformed more and more to the image of God, I want to give you hope this morning. You see, the Apostle John in 1 John 3, 2 says that when he appears, at the end of all things, when Jesus returns and ushers in the new heavens and the new earth, when he appears, you will be like him. For you, shall see, for you shall see him as he is. And oh, brothers and sisters, that's good news. That's how the journey ends. And if you're not trusting in Jesus, if you're not yet on this journey, then I would invite you this morning to put your trust in the true King who wants to conform you more and more to the image of God so that you can be all that you were created to be because He is the true image of God, the true King. You see, that's the origin of humanity. We were created as kings, and the king will redeem us by making us like him. You think about that in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus, the true image of God. Would you cause us right now in this time as we prepare for the Lord's Supper to be renewed after His image.